the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Again, you can follow us, danproftshow.com, and on Twitter, at Dan Proft or at Dan Proft Show. President Trump has uh, surrounded himself over the years with uh, a lot of goofballs, including in the 2016 presidential campaign. No, Hope Hicks, who's uh, returning to uh, the White House as a senior counselor and aide to Jared Kushner. No, she's not one of them. But Roger Stone was, you know, gadfly, provocateur, conspiracy theorist, who's got a uh, long trail of uh, curious political behavior. So this is no defense of Roger Stone, the quote-unquote political operative. But uh, can the president not weigh in with his opinion about a sentencing recommendation in the context of a reckoning that still has yet to bear out on the law enforcement side when it comes to uh, Roger Stone? Of course he can. Of course he can. Is this political interference? Is this the latest uh, impeachable act? Take your best shot. Trump uh, responding to reporters' questions yesterday about uh, whether or not what he tweeted constituted political interference with the Department of Justice in some material way. Uh, okay, do you have any questions? On yeah. Roger Stone, sir, on Roger Stone, yeah. isn't your tweet political interference? No, not at all. He was treated very badly. Nine years recommended by four people that perhaps they were Mueller people. I don't know who they were, prosecutors. And they... Uh, I don't know what happened. They all hit the road pretty quickly. Look, you had somebody just recently, you saw what happened. Uh, he got two months. He got sentenced to two months for leaking classified information at the highest level. Who's that? They treated Roger Stone very badly. They treated everybody very badly. And if you look at the Mueller investigation, it was a scam because it was illegally set up. It was set up based on false documentation and false documents. You look at what happened, how many people were hurt. Their lives were destroyed, and nothing happened with all the people that did it and launched a scam. Where's Comey? Why, where is Comey? What's happening to McCabe? What's happening to Lisa and uh, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page? What's happening with them? It was a whole setup. It was a disgrace for our country, and everyone knows it, too. Everyone. And uh, you know what? He's right. And uh, these points have been conceded, right? The FISA court was defrauded. The warrants on Carter Page shouldn't have been issued. That's current FBI Director Christopher Wray conceding that point. We know Andy McCabe lied to the FBI, changed the story about a Wall Street Journal article during the 2016 race, changed the story in conversation with the FBI, lied to the FBI. That's what George Papadopoulos got prosecuted for. That's what Michael Flynn got indicted for. Where is the reckoning? there. And you want to recommend a sentence of seven to nine years for process crimes that Roger Stone was convicted of committing? Crimes that wouldn't have occurred but for the fraudulent investigation that the president described. I'm not saying Roger Stone shouldn't 
pay for his crimes. Seven to nine years. The the average person convicted of rapes is four years. And the president can't suggest that that is uh, beyond punishment to message sending through another human being. Sure he can. He was asked uh, whether or not he's open to the prospect of pardoning Stone. He wouldn't commit. Are you considering a pardon? For I don't want to say that yet, but I tell you what, people were hurt viciously and badly by these corrupt people. And I want to thank, if you look at what happened, I want to thank the Justice Department for seeing this, this horrible thing. And I didn't speak to him, by the way, just so you understand. I didn't speak to him. They saw the horribleness of a nine-year sentence for doing nothing. You have murderers and drug addicts. They don't get nine years. Now, Stone didn't do nothing, but you understand the president's uh, imprecision with language, sort of historically, and, and the larger point he's trying to make as he's understandably upset, and he continues to be upset about this, with the Durham report pending, and we'll wait patiently until that work product is produced. And I didn't tackle this issue on last night's show because I thought, you know, I don't want to, that's sort of the need to defend Roger Stone or to defend Trump's uh, uh, propriety and having an opinion about a sentencing recommendation. It just seems so mundane. But this is when the left turns mundanities into capital crimes. And so you're forced to comment on it. George Conway, that human donut that's married to Kellyanne, opining in the Washington Post, well, probably going to have to impeach him again. Go ahead. Go ahead, George. Hey, Jerry, Adam, go ahead. Whistle bar before your committees and uh, question him about whether or not uh, the president put the arm on him for uh, in with respect to Stone's sentencing. Go ahead and do it. Keep it up. Have Barr testify. Draft the latest iteration of the Articles of Impeachment. Bring out your paid CNN contributors like Andy McCabe, who has admitted lying to the FBI and has not yet been charged, to moralize about the rule of law. Keep doing what you're doing. Keeping unhinged, unserious, and unprincipled. It all just uh, accrues to the benefit of Donald Trump as we look ahead towards November. And by the way, that's exactly what they did, bringing out McCabe. Every time McCabe is on CNN, every time we have to endure some haughty op-ed from James Comey in the Washington Post, you know, the nation's moral compass, what a joke. More to the point, what an insult. What Trump is speaking to is you don't have equal justice before the law when everybody prattles on about no one is above the law, only as it pertains to President Trump, but senior level officials at the FBI and maybe senior level cabinet officials, senior level officials and cabinet officials in the Obama administration sure seem to be above the law, don't they? Who's been held to account for committing the same crimes? And McCabe has been recommended for prosecution. It happened last fall. So who has suffered the same fate? For the same crimes, Papadopoulos, Stone, even Manafort to some extent. And then you get this ridiculous exchange. Of course, how could it be anything else between Fredo and Andy McCabe on CNN? How about this for an example? And look, you feel far-fetched, you tell me, Andrew. Uh, Mitt Romney. Hey, let's take a look at his taxes. Uh, Do me a favor. Go look into him. See what uh, holdings he still has and still he does. And how about they get some stink on him? And he says, hey, put the screws to him. Oh, you know what? We have him on the case. We're going to cut him a deal. You know, really, this isn't a big infraction. No, I want the max. If this is okay, why wouldn't that be okay? What is to stop it from being not what the president can do? There's absolutely nothing to stop it. And I think we saw that again today in his comments in the Oval Office when the president, after talking about how bad he felt for Roger Stone, then uh, rebounded into talking about how... 
uh, how insistent Vindman. he is that James Comey and mm -hmm. I be prosecuted and thrown in jail. And Vindman so, should be sent back to the military. Exactly. They keep, uh, his people keep selling us this soft landing thing. You know, he's going to go to the war college. You know, that's, that's a peach gig. Everybody wants that. Now the president says he should be investigated by the military. What's to stop that from happening? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we know that this that's ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous uh, from Fredo Cuomo's idiotic New York tough guy talk. Get some stink on him. Put the arm on. Give me a break. This guy's such a dope. Such a dope. What is he talking? About? He's he, he, he's doing his Adam Schiff routine about uh, fictional conversations when we know there was real abuses at IRS under President Obama, real targeting of Americans based on their religious and political views, IRS demanding pro-life organizations turn over copies of prayers they recite at meetings in order to maintain their C3 status. That happened under the Obama administration. And where was Fredo Cuomo then? <laughs> Nowhere. Romney's tax returns. Please. Nothing to stop him, Andy McCabe. You're an officer of the court. What a joke. What an embarrassment. He's right. What a disgrace. There's the attorney general to stop him. Unless you want to conjure up a conspiracy theory about A.G. Barr. He's happy to testify as far as the reporting goes about this matter and any other matter, as he has been from the outset. He's not uh, shrinking violent. He's not hiding. And he's got a 30-year track record in that town, too. Oh, by the way, <laughs> predates Trump by 30 years. But I know he's just a stooge. He doesn't have a mind of his own. And there's no problem when Obama asserted executive privilege to cover his AG, to actually cover his AG, to actually uh, work in concert with his AG such that Eric Holder was not independent, so that Eric Holder didn't get caught up in the congressional oversight and fast and furious drug running or a gun running to Mexican drug cartels that led to the death of a Border Patrol agent. Where were these guys then? Rank hypocrites. Rank hypocrites. And on the whole Vinman matter, can't get to it in this segment. Wait, wait till you, we uh, get to this piece, this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Rich Higgins. Somebody else who is at National Security Council. Somebody else who was fired because, you know, he served at the pleasure of the president. But for very different reasons. And who has a very different take on the Vinman matter. But you go ahead. You go ahead, Fredo Cuomo, McCabe, Swalwell, Nadler, Conway, Schiff, Pelosi, go ahead. Draft your next group of uh, articles of impeachment, and uh, let's prepare to do this all over again right after the kids get back from uh, summer break, you know, early spring. Keep it up. This is the Dan Prop Show. Love stinks. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show now we want to update uh, our conversation from yesterday per the indictment of uh, that french actor juicy smoothie he's a very french 
very famous French actor. Uh, six counts of disorderly conduct per the special prosecutor, Dan Webb, in the case, 35 days before an election, and conspiracy theories abound in Fox Camp that this is an effort to try to upend her as she's cruising to a renomination and reelection and so on and so forth. And she had more to say yesterday. Did she had a funder, I believe? Certainly are cooperating as best we can, and our folks will be huddling up to make sure that he has everything that he needs. No, our office file charges in this case. It's the disposition that was a cause for a difference. Uh, but I think he yeah, has the facts and evidence on a lot of the file charges. Yeah, it's no big deal, and uh, she's owned it, and we all just need to to move on. One, you know, singular mistake, and of course, uh, we talked a little bit about yesterday. Uh, Focus on this, don't focus on, the, you know, the other things that Kim Fox, Soros-financed Kim Fox has done, like uh, other Soros-financed prosecutors around the country, which is to release violent criminals to commit more violent crimes while they're uh, awaiting trial or after they have served a, a light sentence with the charges reduced, even on matters like guns, while you're against the backdrop, you're watching commercials from Kin Fox as well as her main competitor, this Conway kid, talking about how they're going to take on the NRA. Uh, Jesse Smollett outside a subway is hardly the only hate crime hoax perpetrated. And so the question uh, recently, there has been a spike in these swindles. And the question is why? Our next guest wrote a book about it called Hate Crime Hoax, how the left is selling a fake race war. He is Wilford Riley, who's a Chicago native, now an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, a historically black college. And he joins us now. Wilford, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Ben. The Smollett case is obviously perhaps the, well, it is the most celebrated hate crime hoax of recent memory. But uh, in your book, you document a, a number of other such instances that are equally ridiculous. Uh, give us another example or two, and and then the back the uh, backstory in terms of why you decided to write this book. In in all seriousness, the book Hate Crime Hoax. What I find in a sentence is that most of the most high profile recent quote unquote hate incidents, and to take you through a couple equally high profile ones, I mean, Erica Thomas, the senator that claimed she was racially assaulted in a grocery store. Um, what looked like the awful dreadlock cutting case in D.C., which will be in the new edition of the book. Uh, Covington Catholic, where the claim was that these high school athletes had yeah. abused an actual Native American shaman. They'd surrounded him. They chanted, build the wall. They'd shoved him, uh, taken a sacred rain drum. Yasmin Saweed, the torn hijab on the New York Six train. Hopewell Baptist, the claim that black churches were being burnt to the ground. You can just go on and on. I mean, all those turned out to be fakes. Duke Lacrosse, Goucher College. So the um, I estimate in the book that at least 15% of hate incidents and a much higher percentage of high-profile incidents turn out to be absolute proven fakes, not sort of questionable cases, but demonstrable legal fakes. And the book was published by Regnery, obviously right-leaning, but very serious press. There are academic articles coming out of it. So this isn't really disputed. The question is why? Why is this happening? And, and also you have uh, a lot of incentive for law enforcement – because of the politically charged nature of these accusations, they want it to go away. There's, you know, there's not serious criminal penalties that attach, as you're describing, number one. So why expend the resources only to inflame criticism from all sides? Yeah, I think that's very accurate. What you often see, and I, I think this is, I mean, obviously lean center-right politically. I mean, this is true of a lot of things covered by, quote-unquote, the left-wing media, the mainstream media. What you often see isn't a case being proven to have occurred or a case being proven not to have occurred, but what I jokingly call disappearing from the headlines. You kind of wonder whatever happened to that story. 
So if you look at a lot of the, whole, the high profile, for example, uh, incidents on college ca- campuses after the election of Donald Trump, where students claimed that Trump supporters attacked them and beat them in one case, threw rocks at them in another case, uh, someone claimed their car was stolen. You don't find that there were any convictions in those cases, but you also don't find that anyone was prosecuted for false report. You basically just find that the paper trail stops. If you call the police department, I mean, they'll literally laugh and joke with you and say, well, I don't know. We're not working on that one too hard. Yeah, not much motivation necessarily to say this was a fake. Well, and, and then the flip side, since you brought up the uh, the press coverage of these incidents, the press coverage of the incident over the weekend in Jacksonville, Florida, where some uh, 27-year-old kid takes his van and drives it through a Trump voter registration booth at a shopping mall. You know, people dive out of the way. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. He's arrested. He's, you know, it's clear from the police report. You know, he says somebody had to do something with respect to Trump voters and and registering deplorables and so forth. So it it was clear that he was politically motivated. But I mean, this is not getting any uh, any thing like the kind of coverage that any of the hate crime hoaxes you described received in the initial days. Yeah, I do think, I mean, we, we don't want to be conspiratorial, but there obviously are slants in the media. I mean, I, I, re- I wrote a, a second book, Taboo, The Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, discussing some of these conversations you're not supposed to have. And one of the things I mentioned just in the intro to that book is that if you actually look at individuals who are killed in violent encounters with the police, um, about 70 percent of them are white. They're just Caucasian guys. But if you look at media coverage of police shootings, more than 90 percent of it focuses on about the 20 percent minority of cases that involve African-American men. So there are definitely situations where storylines are created. Um, I mean, I've never looked at, you know, the data on one side versus the data on the other side. But I I would be amazed if um, hate attacks on, for example, Republican voters receive the same level of coverage as, you know, hate attacks on photogenic African-American kids or something like that. It's worth noting also that the hate crime laws themselves are fairly narrowly tailored. So attacking Republicans or even Democrats, if you look at sort of the political gangbanging from Antifa versus the Proud Boys and so on, those in general wouldn't be hate crime incidents. Hate crimes would be attacks based on race, sex, a very specific limited number of things, not social class, for example. Uh, I wanted to uh, also, since you teach at a historically black college, how are cases like the uh, Jesse Smollett case and these other hate crime hoaxes, how are they treated? How was your book uh, received on on the campus of Kentucky State as compared to, say, uh, you know, you get around the country, speak at other college campuses, predominantly white colleges? Oh, interestingly, historically black colleges don't have to pretend to be woke. I mean, uh, some are. Harvard or Howard has a bit of a woke (laughs) reputation. But I mean, the entire executive structure for my college, which includes me, is made up of upper middle class black guys. So there's not really necessarily a desire to breastfeed or, you know, apologize for the deeds of our ancestors or whatever. So someone writing a best-selling right-leaning book at Kentucky State, there wasn't really much issue one way or another. And I will say, again, we at Kentucky State haven't had any of these incidents. I mean, again, our police department is a bunch of very well-qualified, no-nonsense black guys. So I think that there's a dramatic difference between how my book would be received at KSU or Morehouse or something like that, and how it would be received at, for example, the Claremont Colleges, where I would be protested by a purple-haired crowd made up entirely of white people. So obviously, no dislike for either whites or African Americans, but I, I definitely or think we haven't hair. we haven't really had any of these problems. Yeah, purple hair, nothing wrong with it. Not sure, my thing personally. Uh, <laughs> he is Wilford C. Riley's associate professor of poli sci at Kentucky State University, author of the book "Hate Crime Hoax: How the Left 
is selling a fake race war. Wilford Riley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me on. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Joe Biden, trying to uh, resuscitate his campaign, has released a uh, new digital ad saying, hey, we're just getting started here. We're in the battle for the soul of this nation. Now, so much we've gained is under attack. We have a tremendous opportunity to take the next great step forward. We don't feel no ways tired. We've come too far from where we started. Nobody told me the road would be easy, and I don't believe he brought me this far to stop now. You don't like what's going on in this country, you only have one thing to do. Work. Together we can and will win. Let's take back this country now. Unfortunately for Joe, that's a small choir. Uh, this thing is just getting started, uh, translated into common parlance. This thing is over for Joe Biden, barring something really unforeseen, unforced errors by a number of his competitors. It's just hard to see how Biden particularly uh, with his performances on the trail where he is ornery when asked about uh, matters like Ukraine or poor performances in previous states. He offers you know, arcane references that are intended to be jovial but come across as insulting. He makes strange sort of uh, philosophical tangents about uh, people who own sport rifles wanting to overthrow the federal government and having to fight off F-15s to do so. It's just bizarre. And so how does somebody who has seen their support in their core, you know, the, the core coalition, if there is even a coalition, the core group of supporters, African-Americans, he's seen that cut in half with Bloomberg within striking distance in terms of the plurality of support from uh, black voters. How does he get back in the game in two weeks? It seems implausible. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Russell Berman, who's a political writer for The Atlantic. Russell, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Before we get to uh, those who have momentum behind them, what about uh, those who are searching desperately to uh, to find momentum like Biden? I mean, is there really a, a path forward for him if, if uh, again, the two-week clock he's put himself on, if he doesn't win outright in Nevada and South Carolina? Yeah, I think, I mean, he's clearly on the ropes, and I think it's all going to depend on South Carolina, where, you know, which is sort of his firewall he has been. He had been up uh, significantly all year, uh, you know, due to his support among African American voters. But even before the result in Iowa, frankly, there was a poll out that showed Bernie Sanders and actually Tom Steyer cutting into to Biden support among Black voters. And and if that, we haven't seen any uh, polls yet 
out of South Carolina since the New Hampshire uh, results. But, you know, I think we, we would expect that that support would continue to crater. And, and if, that, if that goes, then I think most people would conclude that he's done. But, you know, there is two weeks, um, as you mentioned, and a lot can happen. You know, we've seen uh, quick changes um, in this race uh, several times. I mean, you know, Amy Klobuchar finished fifth in Iowa and then, uh, you know, a strong third in New Hampshire. Now all of a sudden she has some momentum. So but, but uh, she, it's but not she, over. Right. But she she was sort of an unknown quantity. And, you know, she's got That's a couple right. of endorsements leading into New Hampshire, including the uh, union leader that helped a bit. And, and Biden is a known quantity. But in a way, he's sort of uh, without brand in this race. I mean, he's supposed to be sort of like, you know, Scranton Joe, practical, commonsensical, more moderate. But he's been pushed into adopting a lot of the same rhetorical positions as Bernie Sanders, uh, open to jailing fossil fuel executives and the like. And it just doesn't seem like he has a discernible value proposition that distinguishes him. I think that that's true. And I think it's also that, you know, the point of these small states going first is that voters can take a really close look and see these candidates up close for themselves. And that usually benefits uh, candidates who are good at, at retail politics. And historically, Biden has been. But the problem for him is that I think voters have seen that he's lost a step and that he's just not uh, quite as smooth and as sharp um, as he as he was even a few years ago when he was vice president. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, pick up the piece that uh, you wrote for The Atlantic, uh, The Night Socialism Went Mainstream, about uh, Bernie Sanders' victory in New Hampshire, then also uh, fold in the two mayors. We'll have more with Russell Berman, political writer for The Atlantic, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Russell Berman. He is a political writer for The Atlantic, and uh, you uh, penned a piece this week, The Night Socialism Went Mainstream with respect to Bernie Sanders' victory in New Hampshire. But has it has it gone mainstream? There was a, a survey out by Wall Street Journal NBC last week that while Democrat primary voters have a net positive impression of socialism, 40 to 23, uh, overall it is uh, not a term that is viewed positively by a, an American general electorate with 18 percent uh, uh 19 percent having a positive view and 53 percent having a negative view of socialism as they understand it, according to that survey. Well, I think the the significance of, of Bernie Sanders win in New Hampshire, even though it was very close, is that he achieved he's achieved already this year what he couldn't achieve at all uh, during his run four years ago. He is now, for the moment, the front runner. And I think it's significant uh, in sort of the modern history of American politics that somebody who proudly 
you know, identifies as a democratic socialist is uh, the front runner for the Democratic nomination. Uh, but, you, you know, the, the poll you pointed out uh, points to the to the fact that, one, he, you know, he doesn't emphasize it that much on the, on the trail. His supporters, you know, his big-time supporters don't identify as Democratic socialists. But clearly this is the term that's going to be stuck to him, uh, both by the Republicans and, and more recently by Joe Biden, who's been trying to bring it up to, to uh, take you know, Senator Sanders down a peg. Even though he, there was a sort of a breakthrough, as you say, with him being uh, the putative front runner at present with that label, uh, does it seem to you that he he's lost a step in terms of his potential upside as compared to four years ago? He narrowly wins New Hampshire. He seems to have, and, and particularly with sort of the the political forces of Obama world and Clinton world allied against him, he, he seems to be somebody right now with a high floor and a low ceiling. Yeah, that's exactly how I was going to put it. Uh, he, the question about him is, is he going to bring in the new voters that his supporters say uh, is what makes him an electable, maybe even the most electable candidate against Donald Trump? Is he going to bring in those people who may have voted for him four years ago and then sat out the general election or voted for Jill Stein or another third party candidate or even voted for President Trump in the general election. And the the jury is still out on that. The turnout in Iowa uh, was not great. And, and the, the thinking is if the turnout was a lot better, then he would have won more clearly in Iowa. In New Hampshire, the turnout was very good. But a lot of that came from independent voters uh, who were voting for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar in the exit polls. The, the two candidates who got the most late deciding uh, support among people who, who made their decisions in the final days before the race voted for them as opposed to Bernie Sanders. And so that is clearly his big, uh, the big question mark around his campaign and where he needs to improve if he wants to stay the front runner uh, beyond uh, Nevada and, and South Carolina. There's, so there's 40 of the nation's 600 billionaires that are Pete Buttigieg backers. And, and I wonder, um, I wonder if uh, they're willing to go uh, Buttigieg versus Bloomberg, Buttigieg versus Sanders, if that became down to that binary, like, say, Trump versus Cruz uh, four years ago. I could see that. What about uh, the two mayors? If if you're a practical, uh, uh, wealthy individual and, and, and a practical voter as well, and you want to see the person that exudes the most competence and has the most uh, uh, impressive track record, as well as the resources to go the distance. Do you stick with the, sort of the fresh face uh, over a Bloomberg, or how how do you see that's, that 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 uh, uh, you know shaking up the race if it came down to the two mayors? I think that a lot of the billionaires are are no different than many other voters in that they're looking at this race and they're looking at okay who can beat. Who do I think is the best general election matchup against Trump? And there's argument if you're taking Buttigieg against Bloomberg, there's arguments on both sides. Bloomberg, the argument for Bloomberg is he, you know, his the perception of him is that he's a moderate, he's business friendly, he's not a threat to uh, Wall Street uh, certainly, um, and he has tons of money that he can swamp uh, even President Trump with. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, the argument for Buttigieg is he's this fresh face. You know, the idea that the middle of the country and, and working class voters are going to rally behind this billionaire, former New York City mayor, uh, I think 
even Michael Bloomberg thought that was unlikely when he decided not to run in 2008, 2012, and 2016. So um, that's going to be the question for them, maybe even more than, you know, who do these billionaires see as less of a threat to their billions between Buttigieg and Bloomberg? That's a whole other question. And doesn't Buttigieg sort of present like a a bit of an Obama 2.0? He's sort of uh, facile with the language on the stump. He uh, speaks at a room temperature level. He uh, uh, use you know he makes references to uh, the Bible. Uh, we can debate the interpret his interpretation of Scripture, but he's making those overtures. He uh, talked, and uh, James Freeman had a piece about it in the journal uh, uh, yesterday. You know, he's used the term virtuous capitalism before, which frankly doesn't sound that much different from Marco Rubio talking about common good capitalism. Um, you know, is right. that is that sort of packaging something that uh, is more attractive, reminiscent of success that Democrats have had recently, namely 2008? I, I think I think that's true. It's it's sort of inoffensive. They they probably perceive that like um, Obama, uh, he can be he can be reasoned with, right? I mean, Obama, other than uh, other than calling uh, bankers fat cats once early in his first term, you know, people on the left perceive that he was too close to to Wall Street and he didn't go after them enough. And so I think that to the extent that Buttigieg is trying to run in the Obama um, uh, mold, um, that might be true of him as well. The other thing to consider is in this Democratic field, not that many of the candidates have actually asked for the the support of billionaires because it's, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have forsworn uh, that kind of help and, and, and super PACs and the like. And certainly Joe Biden has courted them. But for people who who really believe that they need that we need a, you know, a fresh space or that the electorate wants a fresh space, clearly Buttigieg has emerged over uh, over Biden so far. Yeah, he's in that wine cave by himself with respect to the field. Right. Yes, exactly. All right. He is Russell Berman, political writer for The Atlantic. Check out his piece, The Night Socialism Went Mainstream at TheAtlantic.com. Russell, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Here comes the rain again, raining in my head like a tragedy, tearing me apart like a new emotion. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Oh, yeah. Rest in peace, Rod Roddy. Uh, grew up with Prices Right. It's been on uh, since I've been alive. And uh, finally, some useful research out of Harvard. Uh, the uh, Price is Right. Uh, people are worse playing the Price is Right today than they were in the 1970s. Interesting. <laughs> this research done by uh, Jonathan Hartley. This uh, may be of interest to Drew Carey. In the 1970s. The typical guess by Prices Right contestants who came on down was about 8% below the actual price. In the 2010s, people underestimated the price by more than 20%. So this got Jonathan Hartley uh, at Harvard, a data analyst and a longtime fan of the show, trying to figure out why that would be. Why are people less accurate with those household items or even bigger ticket items than they were 40 years ago? 
He uh, came up with three economic factors that uh, most likely explain the discrepancy. First, inflation in the United States was much higher and much less stable in the 70s and 80s. Thank you, Jimmy Carter. Stagflation, malaise. Uh, When inflation is high and variable, people become more attentive to price, noticing they're paying more for goods than before. So, yeah, sort of the elasticity of demand argument, sure. Second uh, factor, the rise of e-commerce may have made people less sensitive to price. Research by economists, including Alberto Cavallo, finds that uh, online competition has made prices more similar across sellers, both online and offline. As a result, people may feel less of a need to do price shopping, to do price comparisons. Third, there are more products than ever. So more prices and price shopping to do if you're going to do it. There are 50 times as many products at a grocery store as there were 80 years ago, according to economist James Besson. So rather than compete on price, companies increasingly uh, increasingly try to differentiate their products in other ways. So it may make it harder for the prices right contestants to know how much stuff costs because there's just so much more stuff to keep track of. That's good. Uh, he uh, concludes that um, if you ever find yourself on uh, this, uh, this piece at Quartz.com, by the way, if you ever find yourself on uh, The Price is Right, the lesson from the research, remember, 8% undershot the price uh, on average in the 1970s, undershooting the price by 20% in the 2010s. So if you ever find yourself on The Price is Right, you know, facing down uh, another contestant on the Showcase Showdown, the uh, research suggests that whatever you think the price is, if you're not particularly studious in price shopping, your estimate should be, as the as Rod Roddy used to say, come on down. And, of course, in uh, a remembrance of Bob Barker's tenure, please do remember to get your pet spade in. This is the day. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on twitter at dan prof show and at dan Proft. and uh frankly this uh, peter Thiel review in first things you know, stands alone is an interesting commentary one of the four aspects of the decadence of modern culture repetition as Thiel explains repetition names the condition of our culture endlessly remaking remakes of remakes whereas the 50s the 60s the 70s and the 80s all had distinctive by the decade styles and design clothing music art from the 90s to now feels like one big remix. We're stuck in a boomer culture loop, which uh, Dothat explains in his book, from J.J. Abrams' remaking George Lucas' Star Wars to Martin Scorsese remaking himself. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the explanations for this culture loop we're stuck in, as Teal describes, may be found in this piece 
uh, by our next guest, Brian Patrick Eha, who is the former editor at Entrepreneur, author of How Money Got Free, and contributed to City Journal. His piece in City Journal on the new Puritans may help explain why we're not as culturally distinct and creative as perhaps we've been in previous generations. For more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Patrick Eha now. Brian, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You uh, talk of the new Puritans and the new moralism, which now, as you write, obscures cultural creation in America. Why don't you develop that argument for us? Sure. Well, essentially, there has uh, come to be uh, what I call the twin notions of this movement, which are that uh, art and entertainment, uh, cultural products, as well as those who produce them, should be subject to ideological and behavioral purity tests. And that essentially those that are found wanting, the term is problematic, they should be kind of thrown out in favor of a more politically helpful or edifying material. And this ends up amounting to a kind of narrowing, a drastic narrowing in some cases of the possibilities for art and entertainment and what can be considered, um, you know, laudable and praiseworthy. But it goes, of so course, it's, much, it's, much deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, this is sort of a version of the cancel culture argument, and you see it in – the interesting thing is you see it in practice a lot in real time, um, perhaps most recently mm. this uh, – uh, this book, uh, American Dirt, uh, which was initially recommended mm-hmm. by Oprah, but then was criticized by identitarians for uh, the author not being a person mm-hmm. who came to this country illegally. So how dare she culturally appropriate somebody else's story of coming to this country illegally and pretend that she's some sort of authority on it? And I mean, good grief. Is she just writing a novel about a, you know telling a story? But it, but it, it, But it was seen as illegitimate in certain quarters. And of course, the author, rather than make the point that I'm making or you would make, she apologized. She said, yeah, you know, they got a mm-hmm. point and I need to try to be sensitive right. and, you know, you, you need to placate the mob. Um, so, right. so that's what's happening in real time. But I just know and I want to see if you can help us understand why uh, can I go to uh, the Chicago Lyric Opera and see Wagner's Ring Cycle? Uh, I mean, that was, you know, Hitler's favorite uh, composer. <laughs> why can I go to the Lyric Opera and see uh, uh, Boris Gudinov? Mazorsky was uh, Stalin's favorite uh, composer. And why why aren't we going back and uh, you know expunging all the great artists right. uh, from time immemorial the way that we're trying to do in present time? Well, don't worry. Listen, there are efforts uh, to make that kind of <laughs> okay, thing happen. Um, in my, so in my essay, <laughs> yes, comforting, isn't it? In my essay, I talk about the fact that. Um, at the, uh, there, there was a lecture hall at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, a, you know, a famous hospital where um, uh, in this one lecture hall, there were 31 portraits of eminent scientists and physicians, uh, but those were recently removed because of some complaints by a few people that essentially too many of these uh, portraits turned out to be you know, of white men uh, from back in the day. And that that was no longer seen as reflecting the uh, makeup of the student body that was getting lectures in that hall. And so uh, rather than kind of just, you know, accept that history, they decided to remove them. Also, the portraits of uh, psychologist William James and other thinkers were removed from Harvard's psychology department uh, for similar reasons. So, you know, don't worry that, <laughs> that, that they're coming for Wagner, too, I'm sure, if they haven't gotten there already. But I think the reason you're able to still hear Wagner is uh, you know not only that he's he's kind of a perennial favorite 
and perhaps a cash cow in some sense for the uh, institutions that still organize uh, his music, uh, you know, performances of his music. But it's that we used to be able to, you know, kind of in a liberal society, you know, small l liberal, uh, we had an understanding of the, the, the that you didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially, that there were cultural riches from all over the world at different times in history that could be, uh, you know, pleasing or beneficial or um, invigorating uh, to experience. And it didn't matter always if, you know, the person was not a perfect human being who created those things. Um, but you mentioned cancel culture, and I think that is an important overlap with what I'm talking about in the essay, but it really goes deeper than that. The reason I uh, use the term the new Puritans, and I think that's important, is because, well, what do we think of the Puritans today? You know, we remember how rigid and austere they were. We remember their moral censoriousness. And in that term, I first want to convey the moral superiority and censoriousness that are, are the defining traits of these people. And second, because I think the name suggests an important truth, which is that uh, social justice has become a kind of secular religion, uh, complete with articles of faith and, you know, unquestioned dogma and, and saints on one side and sinners on the other, and just a whole catechism of beliefs, which the adherents are expected to commit to memory and then constantly revise as new gospels are sort of handed down. Uh, and, you know, one group kind of becomes, falls out of favor, or falls, you know, comes into favor and so on. And um, I think that's a really important thing to understand that at times social justice uh, language is really just a smokescreen for power politics. Um, it functions that way because, well, if you're a per an individual or a member of a certain group, however you define that, and you say openly, hey, I want more power for myself. Well, that's not a particularly noble goal, and nobody is really going to feel that inclined to uh, grant that to you. But if you say instead, hey, you have to give me this because of equality or because I'm a marginalized victim or because I've been oppressed, et cetera, it becomes harder to argue against that, right? Yeah, and, and one of the consequences, as Teal was remarking uh, in reviewing Dothat's new book, is cultural stagnation. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Is that, is yes. that a fair? Um, is that a fair uh, read on that? No, I think I think it absolutely is. That um, you know the original Puritans, they kind of, you know, they they came to uh, the American colonies because they um, wanted to assert their own independence, their own independent religious uh, judgment, uh, and not have to follow all the precepts of the Catholic Church or the Church of England. Um, ironically, though, they ended up condemning other groups like themselves, other believers who, you know, cherish the very freedoms on which they had themselves relied. And similarly, these um, kind of moral censors that we have now, uh, they want to promote, you know, only the art that they find edifying and politically useful, and they want to kind of suppress anything else, even if it might be of greater artistic merit, even if it might be of more lasting value in some sense, or uh, even more progressive in, in, you know, maybe a real materially positive sense. And so that, of course, leads to cultural stagnation. Yeah, and that Manichaean view of the world, uh, to, to sort of paraphrase Andrew Sullivan, who uh, wrote last year, we all, we're all on one big college campus now, we all live on one college campus now, talking about the culture, the censorious nature of the right. culture, uh, the redefinitions right. and the rewriting of history. Uh, it seems to me like we're right. all 
in one big political campaign now. We're all political candidates. <laughs> and what do you do in a political campaign? You, you are endlessly trying to jackpot the other candidate. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an endless mm-hmm. series of looking in the past, trying to manufacture things that aren't there that you wish were there, and that's sort of what it seems to me right. the left does, the social justice warriors do with people with whom they disagree. Mm-hmm. It is looking to end them, to defeat them. Mm, right. Or the other thing is the 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 urge to rehabilitate, as they define it. You know, you've probably noticed all of these movies and books and things that are being remade in new versions with like more racially diverse casts or with an all-female cast instead of an all-male cast like Ghostbusters and so on and it it, it seems like a way for them to kind of um, claim the cultural cachet that these uh, you know movies and books and so on still possess while at the same time kind of assimilating them to their own ideology. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a, a good explanation of what's happening. I agree with that. He is Brian Patrick Eha. He's former editor at Entrepreneur. He's the author of How Money Got Free. And uh, check out his piece, which I'll tweet out from uh, at City Journal, uh, city-journal.org, the column, The New Puritans. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Throwback from Reflex, huh? Politics of dancing, you know what the topic is going to be. Reducing our carbon footprint, of course. This uh, remarkable piece from The Guardian by Susanna Rustin, who's a uh, lead writer for The Guardian. Across the pond there. And, uh, boy, The Guardian publishes some remarkable pieces. Uh, You recall a couple weeks ago we had Les Knight on. He also is... uh, somebody who contributes op-eds to The Guardian. He is the founder of the uh, VHET, you know, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Wants to slowly phase out human reproduction so he can turn the planet back over to uh, the uh, non-humans as a mea culpa for all the damage that we've done to this point. Uh, Susan Rustin has a different idea. She's not going quite that far yet. Um, She uh, does say... Deindustrialization proposals advocated by uh, British Labor Party and by AOC and the Socialist Spice Girls. Brave attempts to grapple with the scale of the crisis. Finland's pledge to become climate neutral by 2035 places it firmly at the front of the developed nations pack. She's encouraged by those developments. However, here's the problem. None of those measures are anything like sufficient This is self-evident, according to her. But if capitalist politicians and scientists have not so far found the answers, what's the question again? And the global mass movement of people called for by Greta and others is, despite recent progress, still proving elusive. Golly, I wonder why. Could the creative arts possibly provide one means to break the impasse? 
if the climate emergency is seen as the consequence of a failure of imagination. Then this would seem to make sense. She points, for example, to a uh, upcoming exhibition at a gallery in London called Among the Trees. Uh, this is uh, about uh, she believes will you know, uh, presentations like this at art galleries will contribute to a broader conversation about ecology. Of course. Uh, all those people and organizations that believe human fulfillment can be found in artistic expression and creativity, making things, singing, music, making, acting, should make the case for a reordering of society that places a much greater emphasis on such opportunities singing, music, making, acting, dancing, in place of our destructive habits of travel and consumption. We need to reorder our lives with respect to the activities we engage in, particularly the leisure activities, so as to be carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people worldwide, she argues, do not have their needs met, let alone live lives of luxury from which air travel and weekly shopping sprees can could be painlessly stripped out and replaced for example, with dance lessons. Yeah. Live lives of luxury, uh, luxury air travel, weekly shopping sprees. You mean like um, all of those elites lecturing us about uh, the end of times because of, you know, our uh, driving a uh, car that runs on fossil fuels or uh, you know, taking a annual vacation? We can... Uh, scratch out with the kids. Yeah, okay. To argue for a reorientation away from narrow economic measures of individual and collective achievement towards a broader conception of human flourishing is not to shirk the, necess- the necessity of financial redistribution, nor is it to abandon technology in favor of survivalist fantasies. Oh, my gosh, the layers of gobbledygook here. But uh, she goes on, when so many of the pleasures, she persists, When so many of the pleasures that we take for granted in the West that are desired by billions of people who do not yet have them are so carbon intensive, it's surely incumbent upon us to think very hard about these things in which we take joy and meaning that are less demanding of energy and resources. Culture won't be on everybody's list. Sport and a renewed focus on family and caring are among other possibilities. But uh, we need to do culture rather than just be passive audience members. A low-carbon future feels more manageable if I picture it as one in which there are more choirs and carnivals, minus the plastic waste, of course, and, and castings for musicals in village halls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just one big commune with everybody plying their arts and crafts. And it's sort of like, uh, I imagine it would sort of end the way that Midsummer does, if you see that uh, ghoulish movie you know with um people that happen upon this happy little commune being uh sacrificed spoiler alert uh but i i guess being in a commune where you're dancing and plying your your choices in the arts and crafts space is better than what patricia mccormick is advocating she's a, a professor professor of philosophy at, at uh angelia Ruskin University. She's also the author of the A Human Manifesto. That book argues that due to the damage done to other living creatures on Earth, much like our friend last night, Vihet, we should start gradually phasing out reproduction. 
Uh, but it doesn't mean we can't do so from a happy place. <laughs> Listen to, you thought gobbledygook, you got gobbledygook from Susanna Rustin talking about uh, the politics of dancing. Listen to the good Professor McCormick. She arrived at the idea. Well, I, apparently she stole it from last night, but she says she arrived at the idea of phasing out human reproduction from a couple of directions. I was introduced to philosophy due to my interest in feminism and queer theory, of course. So reproductive rights have been uh, long been an interest to me. This led me to learn more about animal rights, which is when I became a vegan. <laughs> Wherever the whatever is fashionable, right, Professor? Humanity has caused mass problems, and one of them is creating this hierarchical world where white, male, heterosexual, and able-bodied people are succeeding. Um, You might want to check in places like Appalachia, but okay. And people of different races, gender, sexualities, and those with disabilities are struggling to get that. The book argues uh, for the need to dismantle religion and other overriding powers like the church of capitalism or the cult of self as it makes people act upon and enforce rules rather than respond thoughtfully to the situations in front of them. So as um, uh, this uh, author reviewing Miss McCormick's musings uh, suggests, uh, the next time you're uh, tempted to swallow the myth of man-made climate change that's going to kill us all in in the not-too-distant future— Remember that the queer theory, atheist, feminist, vegans want you dead anyway. So why bother to indulge their lunacy? Not that anybody's opposed to uh, Arthur Murray lessons if you're so inclined for a a new hobby. This is the Dan Proctor. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, we've got a lot to talk about as it pertains to China, coronavirus being at the top of the list, but also the DOJ indictment of charges against four members of uh, the Chinese Communist People's Liberation Army for the Equifax hacking that uh, stole the sensitive information on 147 million Americans. This is, uh, these are, you know, indictments in absentia. We saw that in the previous administration as well. The question is, uh, is this effective in trying to deter bad actors and bad actions in China? Robert Williams, the executive director of the China Center at Yale Law School, had a piece in The Atlantic suggesting that, uh, not really. Uh, he, as well as Harvard Law Professor Jack Goldsmith, basically say that if deterrence is the measure of success, the Chinese hacking indictment strategy has all the earmarks of a spectacular failure. Uh, China's state-sponsored cybercraft has not meaningfully diminished in response to U.S. the U.S. indictment campaign, knowing that uh, 
these Chinese nationals will never be on American soil. So what do those indictments mean? This shouldn't come as a surprise, uh, writes Williams. The costs of, to China of being named and shamed are almost certainly dwarfed by the billions of dollars of value obtained from pilfering U.S. technologies and the untold intelligence benefits of, con- of cultivating a massive database on American citizens. Well, if professors uh, Williams and Goldsmith are right, then what should the U.S. be doing in response to ongoing Chinese industrial espionage? For more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Josh Phillip, senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times and host of the China Report. Uh, they are uh, digging into this matter as well, the hacking and espionage that fuels China's growth. Josh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, real pleasure. Some good topics to talk about. So what uh, what do you say in response to uh, the, the uh, legal eagles over at Yale and Harvard that suggest these indictments is the wrong approach? Well, I'd have to disagree with them. And, of course, as we know, Yale and Harvard are currently under investigation yes, right now for good. taking a very large amount of money from China. So good I point. question anything they say about China at this point. Yeah, that is a fair point. But, um, <laughs> but, but I mean, but, but these ind- indictments in absentia, we know we're never going to prosecute these Chinese nationals. So what is the point of including that as part of a multi-pronged strategy? Well, I'd say that they are part of the multi-pronged strategy. And let's look at the bigger context of this first. Last year, the FBI started a special task force approved to investigate Chinese influence operations overseas. And these four Chinese hackers who were just indicted, yeah, they're they're not going to be arrested unless they step foot into a country that has an extradition treaty with the United States. But that does send a clear message to the Chinese Communist Party, look, um, you, if, if your people, even your soldiers acting under, acting under the command of the Chinese Communist Party, attack Americans, if you violate our laws, you will be held accountable, we will find out who you are, and we will punish you. It sent a clear message, message to them, and I believe that the Obama administration sent a good message as well when they did the same thing with the, uh, the five hackers with Unit 61398. Um, but with these hackers, this, th- you have to look at the big picture. As you mentioned, it's a multi-pronged thing. This happens also right as this Harvard professor was just indicted as well, right? Right. Uh, for, for being part of the Chinese Communist Party Thousand Talents program. Comes right as Pompeo is coming out and talking about the Chinese Communist Party's united front strategy and how they have databases on American politicians, mayors, on their positions on China and how to exploit them. Calling out the Chinese Communist Party's, uh, what do you call them, Chinese Student and Scholar Associations, these um, organizations at U.S. universities funded and directed by the Chinese consulates. I'd say this is part of a bigger picture, which suggests that the U.S. government is really, say, not pulling punches anymore when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party's influence operations. And this has been a point of negotiation during the trade talks between the two countries. Larry Kudlow made the point with the phase one deal that uh, for the first time there's a reporting mechanism Uh, that offers at least some prospect of accountability when it comes to intellectual theft and and that, you know, more of that is going to need to be filled in in phase two and beyond. Yeah, well, that's part of the trade war. And that that is something I believe had to be done. Now, when we look at the Chinese Communist Party, they, they don't hide what they're doing. They don't try they don't try to hide it in any way. They had what's called Project 863, and that the directive of that was for catching up fast and suppressing the West. That policy, uh, since I believe the 1980s in place, 
called for direct theft against uh, U.S. U.S. intellectual property to advance the Chinese economy. The China 2025 plan was an update of that. It, ident it identifies all these different high-tech industries that they want to compete with the United States on through hook through by, and by crook. And when it comes to these Chinese hacker groups getting called out, it, it's interesting to note how the Equifax breach differs from that. When we come back, I want to ask you uh, about uh, coronavirus and the Chinese response as well as the genesis of it. We'll have more with Josh Phillip right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Josh Phillips, senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times and host of the China Report. So now fold in all, all that the, that you described. This is where it gets really interesting, and this, this is where I'm currently researching when it comes to this breach. These hackers, the ones who were exposed, these four Chinese military hackers, were not with the same branch as the previous one that were indicted. Um, during, in 2014, when the Obama administration indicted those five Chinese hackers, those guys were with the Unit 61398, which was the third department of the General Staff Department. And bear with me. The General Staff Department was the war-fighting branch of the Chinese military. Now, why is the war-fighting branch of the Chinese military launching cyber attacks against American businesses, privately held businesses, not military targets, to steal their intellectual property and advance the Chinese Communist Party's economy. Well, it's because they have, an ec they have economic warfare policies that designate economic theft as a military operation. Now, these recent hackers are with a different group. They're with the Fourth Department. They were with the, it's called the 54 Research Institute. And the Chinese Communist Party recently restructured these things, which I can explain. But let me explain the significance of it first. The Obama administration breach was done by the guys into the Signals Intelligence Agency. The third department was the Signals Intelligence Branch. In other words, uh, monitoring, stealing data from networks, that kind of thing. The recent guys are with the fourth department. Under the same branch, and also under the General Staff Department, the warfighting branch of the Chinese military, but their focus is electronic warfare. The fourth department is focused on electronic warfare. And so these guys are a, a much more aggressive uh, branch. They, their, their focus is more, more attack-oriented. And that really, I think, calls into question what the nature of the Equifax breach was, because they're stealing credit information on American citizens. They're, they're not stealing intellectual property. They're stealing social security numbers, credit card numbers. They're stealing driver's license numbers. Why, why would they need that? What is the motivation for getting data on private citizens like that? Well, let's look at what happened uh, in the past few years. The Chinese Communist Party basically did away with the General Staff Department as it was, and it created what's called the Strategic Support Force. One of the branches moved over into it was the 54 Research Institute, which these recent hackers uh, were just indicted are part of. And the moving over of the 54 Research Institute was taken by a lot of China watchers as a sign that the Strategic Support Force would also have a strong focus on electronic warfare as well as other cyber operations. Now, they got, these guys exposed, documented, recorded everything, take their orders from the Chinese military. Of course, Chinese military takes its orders, this, this branch in particular, from the Communist Party. And so this is a state, these are state-directed operations. 
of the credit cards that were stolen, we have not seen any evidence that these cards were used for fraud, which means that these hackers were not putting them on the dark net and selling them, which sometimes they will do. Um, I exposed a, a hacker marketplace run by Chinese hackers uh, several years ago called Babylon APT. Uh, they recently changed the name to Cybercrime Market. And basically, it's run by Chinese hackers, and they'll launch their government operations. They'll steal data from companies. They'll provide the main stolen stuff they were assigned to steal to their handlers, and then they'll go on the, online and sell the rest of the stuff to the highest bidder. These cards did not appear on there. These cards were not used for economic gain. They were not used for that. And so what are they being used for? And I think you mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast the prospect the Chinese Communist Party has a database on Americans. And if you were to ask me, I'd say that's exactly what this is being used for. The questions, now they've been rebuffed, but, uh, you know, this is a, a regime that's, uh, that does agitprop and propaganda. So uh, how can you take them at face value? The idea that the coronavirus was uh, uh, part of uh, research going on at a, a biowarfare laboratory in Wuhan, sort of the epicenter of the outbreak, and uh, that this is either sort of you know, Chernobyl in terms of incompetence or something even more nefarious than that. What kind of credence do you give those questions? Well, let, let's look at the surface narrative first, and then what is the more probable narrative. The surface narrative from the Chinese Communist Party is that the virus started in this live food market. And, th and that's a very nice alibi because they went in there and they cleaned the whole thing out. They got rid of the whole crime scene. No blood, no bodies, so to speak whole thing is gone. And so it means when foreign investigators go in, when American investigators and WHO investigators go in, the crime scene is gone. There is absolutely, there's no evidence left. There's nothing to look at, nothing to see. There, there's no way of proving them right, no way of proving them wrong. But something is standing in the way of that narrative, which is the first case on December 1st that emerged with the virus had no connection whatsoever to that marketplace. And the virus cases after that, there were four Three of the four also had no connection. In other words, the narrative doesn't line up. That, that narrative does not hold. That narrative is not credible. Now, what is 20 miles up the road from that market? Well, you have the P4 laboratory. This is the highest level of, say, security you can possibly have for a virus research lab. And it just so happens they have coronaviruses there. And guess what? Well, if you look at the sequence of the virus, and we've, we've, of course, had experts look at the sequence. It's public. There's two things interesting about it. Part of the virus, now there's two main parts to it. One of the, one of the parts is a 100% match of another virus in, a, in, a, in the database that they have on these things that links back to the Chinese military in Nanjing. In other words, the Nanjing Chinese military submitted a virus, a bat coronavirus, that is a 100% match to the current one. In addition to that, the virus has spikes. The spikes are what allow it to, uh, you know, uh, basically infect cells. It's what allows it to be human, human transmittable. And these spikes appear to come from the SARS virus. And so either somehow through magical mutation out in the wild, this bat coronavirus mutated on its own, which typically never happens, mutated on its own, became human transmittable through some SARS virus miracle. That's that we have to believe that if that's the non-laboratory you know, narrative for that. But there's something else interesting that happened in 2015. That Wuhan laboratory, 
The head researchers came out in 2015 and announced and bragged and published papers on it, stating that they had altered a bat coronavirus to become human transmittable. In other words, they made a claim of creating a virus that perfectly fits the profile of this current virus. And it just so happens that lab is about 20 miles from the place where they said the epicenter of the virus was. Interesting. He is Josh Phillip, senior investigative reporter for the uh, Epoch Times and host of the China Report. Uh, great stuff, Josh. Uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We had the Academy Awards this past Sunday, and I noted uh, the apartheid that still exists within the Academy. Uh, how could Hollywood be so unenlightened? Best male actor? Best female actor, best supporting actor for men, best supporting actor for women. <laughs> what, what's going on here? Shouldn't it just be best actor and best uh, picture, best supporting actor? And, you know, no gender categories. We need to break down those walls, don't we? That's what's happening in sports, particularly girls' sports, you know, where men are winning girls' sporting competitions and pushing women out of sport. Why not in Hollywood? On Wednesday... Three high school girls in Connecticut and their moms filed a Title IX lawsuit against the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, challenging the rules that allow biological males to compete in women's high school sports. Maybe this is the beginning of something, a little bit more awareness, and frankly, maybe this will be contagious. I'm talking about the courage of these women, the girls as well as their moms. High school senior Chelsea Mitchell is the fastest biological girl in Connecticut, but she's not the state champion because she's got to run against boys. She lost four state championships to male competitors who identified as female. It's very unfair for me and the other girls to race against biological males. It's inspired me and the other girls to stand up and fight for our right to compete and to have a fair competition. Right. A fair competition because we know from science, memo to the party that alleges to be the party of science, we know that men are intrinsically twice as strong as women, just in terms of bone density and muscle mass. Women have half to two thirds of the innate strength that men do. So that would matter. You know, for, for example, you're not going to have any woman outrun Usain Bolt on this planet, no matter how long she trains. No men can't. No man can either. But they couldn't outrun anybody else that Usain Bolt is outrunning. We were eliminate these categories at the Olympic level, which, of course, there's a move to do precisely that. Lining up against them is very intimidating, said Chelsea Mitchell. It's also frustrating and disheartening to know that they have an unfair advantage against me. I really felt defeated. There really isn't much more I can do than just run my race every time. Every race I've ever run against the biological males, I've lost. It's definitely very defeating. It makes you wonder why you're continuing to run. They're being represented in this suit by the Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF saying, well, while boys and girls have comparable athletic capabilities before boys hit puberty, male puberty quickly increases the levels of circulating testosterone in healthy teen and adult males to levels 10 to 20 times higher than the levels that occur in healthy adult females. And this natural flood of testosterone drives a wide range of physiological changes that give males a powerful psychological athletic advantage over females. I mean, honestly, the fact that we have to do basically 
freshman level biology in order to explain why men and women shouldn't be competing against one another, particularly men versus women, that there isn't this innate advantage. This is the evidence is so obvious. So what is the end game here? The end game is to show how tolerant you are by eliminating women's participation in women's sports. (laughs) What? We'll follow this Connecticut case to see where it goes. But even more importantly than uh, the law, we'll see if there may be some others around the country who want to stand up to this cultural insanity the way those families and those girls in Connecticut are. This is Dan Proud. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on twitter at dan prof show and at dan prof and uh i'm baffled by this there is someone running against bobby rush in the democrat primary for congress and i, I don't know you know under whose sanction this uh young lady thinks she's doing this because i i thought you had to wait until you were told it was okay by the panjan drums of the Chicago Democrat Party before you would do something like this that's an affront to one of our grand civic elders. For more on this uh, remarkable story, we're pleased to be joined by Sarah Gadd, who's a Democrat candidate for representative for Congress in Chicago's first congressional district. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what 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 is going on? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, what, who do you think you are? <laughs> I'm just a normal person who has lived through a lot of the hardships that a lot of my constituents have lived through. They actually approached me and asked me if I would be willing to join this race and unseat him. There's been a huge absence in leadership in our district over the course of several years. People have really started to take notice. So now they're actually looking to find somebody else to vote for. And what does Bobby Rush say about your candidacy? Oh, I met him actually (laughs) two weeks ago, and he said to me, I'm not Jim Crowley, and you're not AOC. (laughs) And I was thinking in my head, Jim Crowley actually shows up and votes on House Code and does his job. But I didn't say that to him because I didn't want to disrespect my elders. Yeah, let's take a a step back. Because you've had some, um, uh, you know, from your your bio that I read, you've had uh, some incredible trials and tribulations. And so uh, frame those for us so we have an understanding of, uh, you know, your candidacy, what the impetus for your candidacy, as well as what kind of representative you'd be. I was in my third year of medical school. I was in a very bad car accident and I was badly injured. I became addicted to prescription opioids um, and that addiction pretty much destroyed my life and took everything away from me. I went from having a full ride to medical school to being um, a Cook County jail inmate in less than two years. And I was badly abused when I was in that jail, um, physically assaulted, sexually assaulted, stabbed. Um, And, you know, when you get out and you're like, finally, I'm free. The punishment is just getting started. You can't find a job or a place to live. Um, there was a point where I was homeless in the middle of 
uh, January in Chicago. And just to experience really how far our system takes you south and living in a in an area where this is happening to everybody around you, just I felt compelled to do something about it. I didn't want to keep living my life being treated like a second class citizen because I made a mistake in my twenties and I was operating under the throes of an addiction. I came to realize while I was incarcerated that um, crime a lot of the time is really just acts of survival. And if we had better support and social services for people in very vulnerable parts of the country, um, places like the south side of Chicago, where, you know, communities are very fractured and um, very impoverished. And people are really just doing whatever they can to survive. Yeah, that's a remarkable turnaround. And one of the things it sounds like to me is that opportunity that uh, the lawyer presented you was an opportunity to rediscover your agency. And I wonder how much uh, you, th- you think about that and, and as you work with other people who are similarly situated, uh, helping them rediscover their agency so they can turn things around the way that you did. I mean, all the time. Um, but the, the sad reality is that a lot of people don't get these second chances. So I work with these youth and young adults who I see have incredible potential, but they haven't been able to explore that potential because, you know, they're in a space where room for exploration is very limited. And they make one poor decision in their youth and it causes them to miss a lot of opportunities later on in life. So, you know, I close my campaign video by saying, I envision a first district where everyone has a chance and a second one if they need it. I actually closed my law school application saying, I just need a second chance. And if I'm given that, I won't need a third. Um, I have posters all over the, uh, the district saying a second chance for the first district. That's because I live in, a, in an area that is so disproportionately disenfranchised. And it's just feeding into the problem. And a lot of the people who are system demonizes and vilifies is incapable of rehabilitation. They're really just normal people who made a mistake or a poor decision in a time of desperation or hopelessness or maybe when they were under the influence of mental illness or substance abuse, and they got caught, and society refuses to let them forget it. And so that's why we have uh, an area like the south side of Chicago that's 90% African American, where two-thirds of black men over the age of 24 have a felony conviction. We have unparalleled rates of poverty, gun violence, the second highest black unemployment rate in the country. I mean, these are all problems that are inextricably linked that can be traced back to, um, you know, our criminal justice system or the vicious cycle of poverty and incarceration. So that's seems to me that it's time for a paradigm shift, right? You had to yeah. shift uh, uh, the paradigm in your life, and it's time for a paradigm shift with, res- with respect to congressional representation and with respect to approach to some of these pathologies in the community. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually just posted about this yesterday for Black History Month. I post my racial justice and reconciliation. And I noted it there that 
our district, the first congressional district, ranks in the top 5% for black majority districts and in the top 5% for worst districts for black people to live in. Like, that's a fact. I mean, we mm-hmm. rank 17 out of 435 for worst districts for black people to live in. And just per capita, we have the highest population of black Americans in our district. And so it's like this is what 27 years under Bobby Rush's leadership has amounted to a district that literally ranks the worst in the country for the majority of people that live there. I mean, he plays dirty, like really dirty. He's had his staff like go around the district and rip down my posters and signs. It got to the point where he had to press charges because they were doing it so much that it had wasted thousands of dollars of ours. And we caught him in the act, like we have it on video. And we finally press charges. Then they get the store manager where we caught them doing that to lie. Sorry, I know you've beaten the odds in so many respects, but um, what do you think here? Is this a statement raised to put sort of a marker down for younger people for a generational handover, or do you really think you can win? No, I really think I can win. Um, Polling has actually showed that the more people get involved with this race that haven't participated in the past. Um, I mean, it could actually be an easy path to victory. It's just a matter of mobilizing people who haven't moved to the polls in years, mostly because there hasn't been a viable choice. Um, But also the fact that this is going to be a very high turnout Democratic primary. And what I can tell you just from five, six months of campaigning is that there are more people who want Bobby Rush out than want him in. So, I mean, it's it's not going to be a situation where, you know, I just miserably lose to Bobby Rush. Um, I think that we're reaching a juncture where his time is, is probably um, come, if not in this election, in the next one. You'll know you're gaining on him when they graduate from ripping down signs to uh, having his Black Panther Party friends. Sarah Gadd, Democratic candidate for Congress in Illinois' 1st Congressional District, Chicago South Side. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with your candidacy. Thank you so much. Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, as a uh, practicing Catholic myself, uh, always interested in uh, who occupies the papacy and uh, 
Unsurprisingly, Pope Francis was uh, hailed upon uh, ascending to the papacy as uh, a hail by the, the Western press because he was seen as a South American socialist who was going to be the first non-Catholic pope. And, uh, of course, uh, I was skeptical of that press coverage because that's the story the press wants to tell. And, uh, you know, politics aside, fealty to the catechism is what I expect from pope, particularly if I'm not going to have my my belief in papal uh, infallibility shaken. But it hasn't necessarily turned out to be the case. It turned out the press was accidentally uh, onto something, perhaps. This uh, certainly is the suggestion of a um, long piece on the reign of Pope Francis by Daniel Mahoney from National Review. Daniel Mahoney is the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College in uh, Worcester, Mass., author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity, and his piece in National Review, nationalreview.com, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Pope Francis, wayward shepherd. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. So, um, you know, the first commandment uh, speaks of having no other gods, and yet it seems that uh, Pope Francis is leading many Catholics down a road to have a lot of secular gods, a Mother Gaia uh, with respect to climate change politics and uh, sort of just uh, in general a social justice as a substitute religion for Catholicism. I think that's broadly right. You know, uh, I was criticized the last day or two because the Pope issued an exhortation about that Amazonian Synod where he did not change Catholic teaching on the celibate priesthood, but he said nothing about it whatsoever, which means he left it completely open for the future. But no, I think everything I said in the article is correct, and it's along the lines of what you suggested. I don't, I don't want to suggest that Pope Francis doesn't conceive himself as a Catholic, but the emphasis is so one-sidedly on disworldly concerns. And of course the Church is concerned with the things of this world, but it does, he does so in an irresponsible way. A Catholic social teaching, as you rightly said, gets transformed into something like a, social, a, a socialist and radically ecological version of itself. You know, the, teach, the preoccupation with plastics and uh, things totally beyond the competence of the papacy, a kind of apocalyptic vision of the future. Uh, and, you know, even having a synod on the Amazon Valley, you know, the, uh, the Catholic population of the Amazon has decreased uh, by half in the last three decades because all the church does is talk about the environment and social justice while the evangelical preachers come in and talk about a need of change of heart and uh, a conversion to Christ and all of this. So, uh, And then there's the strange stuff I talk about in my article uh, of the head of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences saying repeatedly that China best instantiates or embodies Catholic social thought today. Yeah, Pay no attention to those concentration camps for Uyghur Muslims. Or the fact that the Catholic Church has been outlawed in China since 1949. (laughs) And, of course, Cardinal Parolin and the Pope came to an agreement with the Chinese that have thrown the underground church faithful, martyred church, under the bus. And the persecution continues. So it's a strange, I call it a a preferential option for left-wing dictatorship. Well, The close friendship of the Pope with Morales in Bolivia, the disposed tyrant, or or even Fidel, who he expressed admiration for 
a man who persecuted the Catholic Church viciously for 60 years. Yeah, and there's something else that you get to, too, which is sort of this, um, oh, I don't know, I guess what I would call a Louis XIV complex he has. You write his tendency, Pope Francis is, is to identify the magisterium of the Church, its settled and unchanging teaching going back to apostolic times, with his own whims and ideological preferences. You call it the most troubling aspect of his papacy. It's sort of, you know, I am the Church is essentially uh, what you're suggesting. This is what critics of Catholicism have argued forever, that uh, papacy is a kind of despotism, uh, one man defining the truth of, of the faith, etc. That's never what Catholics have understood. And uh, this, you know, the American bishops met in Baltimore in November, and this left-wing papal nuncio in Chicago, uh, in uh, Washington, um, Christophe Pierre, spoke to them. He said, you're not on board with Pope Francis's magisterium. And as I point out in the article, that's not the way Catholics talk. Popes don't have their own magisterium. They have a very conservative job. Uh, and the quote sums it up very nicely, to conserve the teaching that's been passed on from the apostles. And Catholics also believe in something called the natural law, natural moral law. The big truths don't change. And the people around Francis and Francis himself talk too much about change. They want to accommodate the spirit of the age. They want to kneel before the world. Well, that destroys the integrity of the faith. So I don't want to overdo it. I, I think the Pope has his good moments, but thrust of the papacy is in this troubling direction. Right. I mean, there's the, to speaking of those good moments that, of course, are, are completely uh, tamped down in terms of any press coverage because they don't comport with the secular views of the majority of the uh, Western press. For example, Pope Francis also has called the redefinition of marriage an anthropological regression. That doesn't get a lot of uh, ink. And frankly, he doesn't talk about it that much either. He said it. He's taken that position just as, of course, he defends the sanctity of human life from conception to uh, natural death. But uh, these are not issues he speaks about with moral clarity often. No. And in fact, he's been quite critical of those who do, who speak with moral clarity about these issues. And then the appointments, the Episcopal appointments, have all been people who have downplayed these absolutely central concerns of the Catholic Church. So McElroy in San Diego, after Archbishop Vigano came out with his, I think, quite credible charges about McCarrick and the papacy's uh, you know, involvement Cover in covering yeah. all that up, he said, this is a distraction from the things that matter, plastics, meaning mm. plastics in the Pacific Ocean. We had a moment with that uh, with, of course, Cardinal Supich in Chicago, where he said to a local uh, reporter, you know, I don't have time to talk about uh, the sex abuse scandal in the church. I'm too busy focused on, you know, a $15 minimum wage. And I mean, that sort of tone deafness is exactly why uh, you have uh, Catholics considering themselves as former Catholics or at least uh, former churchgoers. I think that's right. I think the other deeper philosophical and theological question is whether these guys really are affirming the traditional faith or they're inventing a kind of new Christianity where the focus is strictly humanitarian. You know, from time to time, Francis will say, he said it yesterday in his exhortation, that the church is an NGO, but he most often acts like it is an NGO, that it's uh, out to promote a certain questionable leftist egalitarian vision of wealth redistribution, radical environmentalism, etc. And you know, as I said, uh, if the, you know, Catholicism was the overwhelming religion of the Latin American peoples 20 years ago, 
It's no longer the overwhelming. Forty-five uh, percent of Brazilians, a once overwhelming Catholic country, call themselves Catholics. So this redefinition of Catholicism as left-wing humanitarian social justice is not working. It's not working because it doesn't compel people, doesn't challenge their souls. Who needs the uh, residue of Catholicism where you can have your socialism pure? He is Daniel J. Mahoney, Augustine Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College in Worcester, Mass., author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump uh, talking to reporters at the White House yesterday and suggesting that, uh, yeah, I mean, if it came down to uh, Bolshevik Bernie or Caesar Mike, he prefers Mike. He's a lightweight. You're going to find that out. He's also one of the worst debaters I've ever seen. And his presence is zero. So he'll spend his three, four, five hundred million dollars. Maybe they will take it away. Frankly, I'd rather run against Bloomberg than Bernie Sanders because Sanders has real followers. Whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not, I happen to think it's terrible what he says. But he has followers. Bloomberg's just buying his way in. Uh, but we're going to find out what happens. Uh, he didn't uh, have any comment on Manic and Pete. I think he's still searching for a nickname. Um, he's welcome to take mine, Manic and Pete. You know, he looks like he uh, was a mannequin from the uh, Macy's and men's department from Mishawaka. Sort of got lost and became a presidential candidate somehow. So welcome to take that. Or how about this? Thomas Juno, who is a uh, professor at the University of Ottawa, the Graduate School of Public Policy, uh, notes that uh, Pete Buttigieg's name originally comes from Arabic and means literally father of chicken. Um, this is somebody who tweets on Middle East policy and, and so he actually has the... Uh, the linguistic history here. He uh, goes on to even clarify, as a number of folks rightly point out, my tweet is incomplete. Yes, Buttigieg comes from Abu Dajaj, which literally translates as father of chicken. But in practice, in Maltese, which I do not speak, you know, that's the heritage of Buttigieg, it is more accurately translated as owner or keeper of chicken. You know, I think that's a distinction without a material difference. Father of chicken works for me, possibly something the president will adopt. For more on uh, the prospective opponents for President Trump, we're pleased to be joined by Kelly Sadler, communications director at America First Action and a former special assistant to uh, President Washington Times and Caesar Mike Bloomberg News alum. <laughs> Kelly, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just workshopping some nicknames there for the president and for yeah, others. Yeah, sounds you know. good. Sounds yeah. good. Like, yeah, owner of chicken or whatever, yeah. master of chicken. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, just, uh, hey, you know, you want to be uh, linguistically correct, so we appreciate the help there. <laughs> yeah. What about that? What about the president's the preference, at least uh, so he stated, for Bloomberg over Bernie because uh, he doesn't see a, a, a defined constituency for Bloomberg where uh, there clearly is one for Bernie? Well, you know, uh, I think the president loves to sow a little discord in this Democratic nomination contest. And wherever he sees an opportunity, he's going to throw in his opinion and mix things up. Now, clearly, from, you know, a campaigning perspective, Bernie Sanders would be an ideal candidate for us to contrast the president's record with, you know, an avowed socialist. 
probably a communist. There is no clearer way for us to kind of define ourselves and who we are as Americans and the president's accomplishments than to go against Bernie Sanders. But with Bloomberg, he does have a case. I mean, Bloomberg is buying his way into this election, and we'll see just what the force of money gets him come Super Tuesday. He's got a a bunch of issues he's going to have to account for and or apologize for, though, um, if he wants to win over his progressive wing of the party, uh, not only that he's buying his way into this election, but his record as mayor of of New York City when he was a Republican, then an independent, then a Democrat, and then he's calling himself a liberal. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole span of things that uh, we can go on the offense with if Bloomberg does secure this nomination. Do you think that uh, the Democrat primary electorate is sort of settled on this notion of uh, big government gambits, uh, socialism, essentially, in so many forms, and they're just trying to figure out what the right packaging for that uh, hmm. policy agenda is? Well, I think that the Democrats are in the midst of a civil war right now. Uh, they don't know who they are or what kind of faction of their party is going to win out. I mean, if you look at the polls I and mean, if you look at the contests that have been won, uh, Bernie Sanders is the clear victor. I mean, he was number one in Iowa, number one in New Hampshire. He's going to go to Nevada. There's a good chance with union support to take that state. And then he's going into South Carolina. Um, where Biden still thinks he's somewhat viable because of the African-American vote. But, like, let's just be real. Uh, All voters are pragmatic, and they're not going to vote for somebody who's lost three states in a row. Now, the argument can be made if you were to add up Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden's votes, that they kind of total or they outweigh what the support of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren have. But then you're looking at, like, can any one of them actually kind of coalesce that vote, the moderate lane, to overcome Bernie? And we saw this in 2016 with President Trump, right? There was a bunch of establishment Republicans on the stage all vying for kind of the establishment vote. But the president uh, made it through because no one was able to coalesce that to bring that constituency together. So I think we're seeing that on the Democratic side of things. And it's very likely that Bernie Sanders will be their nominee. Uh, When we come back... With uh, Kelly Sadler, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, controversies that have been manufactured in the last week as Democrats are looking for their new, their next uh, group of articles of impeachment. More with Kelly Sadler, Com Director at America First Action, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Kelly Sadler, Tom Director at America First Action, former special assistant to President Trump and uh, Washington Times and Bloomberg News alumnus. Kelly, interesting piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal from a former NSC official named Rich Higgins. The White House fired me for my loyalty. In contrast to Colonel Vindman, I lost my job because I was loyal to the president and he was served under National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster. He was asked to leave by the then Deputy National Security Advisor Rick Waddell because he wasn't on board with the senior leadership at National Security Council opposing Trump's directives to find ways to extract U.S. troops from Afghanistan, for example. He writes, nobody called me a whistleblower, demanded an investigation. Congress didn't invite me to testify. Editorialists and pundits didn't express outrage about my firing, which was as it should be. I served at the pleasure of the president. So did General McMaster and everyone else on the NSC staff. 
and that includes Colonel Vindman. His position was not an entitlement any more than mine was, and he is a military man should understand that. That's a counterpoint from somebody else who served and was terminated because he served at the pleasure of the president. That doesn't seem to be stopping the histrionics hmm. regarding the firing of the Vindman brothers and the purge going on at NSC as Trump is finally installing some of his people and removing people who should, should have been probably removed on day one. Yeah. And what we have to remember is that this president came from no political establishment background. He was a businessman. He was a real estate developer who owned a family company. And he comes into Washington and he comes into the swamp and he inherits a lot of these career politicians. And when he came in, Obama had ballooned the NSC staff from like the 30 to 50 people it was under George W. Bush to over 200 people. And so he comes in and he kind of inherits this and he thinks everyone's on board, right? I won the election, these politicians, these, these careerists, they're, they'll, 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 they'll issue my directives. And he's learned. It's a lot of learning um, as you're going. And uh, he learned uh, we're three years into this, but now we're seeing the shedding of and the slimming down of the NSC, um, which it should be. You don't need 200 people. You know, with dissenting voices, you need just a few, uh, a couple dozen or so um, that are on board with your agenda, the campaign uh, slogans, and not only the slogans, but the promises that you made on the campaign trail to, to want to deliver um, for the American people. So the president uh, has been made aware of this. He is taking the right action. Now we're seeing Hope Hicks coming back to the White House, right. which is very encouraging. She is a true believer and a loyalist. I can't say uh, too many nice things about Hicks. She's just phenomenal. Um, we're seeing Johnny McEntee. He was fired by the chief of staff, Kelly, um, brought back into the White House. The loyalist to the president now might be heading up uh, presidential personnel. The president wants people around him that support him. And it's yes, it's taken a while, but uh, it's, he's well within his right to have the right people surrounding him um, and to execute on his vision for this country. Well, right, which the, all of the, uh, the, 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 the criticisms suggesting that this, uh, these terminations or, or bringing back in advisors that are within the president's purview, I mean, uh, that this is some sort of authoritarian play. This is what happens yeah. in banana republics. I mean, this oh, is give me a break. right. Uh, the, he's not. A, I mean, if it was President Obama who had enemies inside his perimeter, would you say he had every right to put his own people in there that he trusts? Of course, they would say that. So it's a bit ridiculous. But they're using this as the base, the, the left, the George Conway's of the world who opined about the need for President Trump to be impeached again. And, and now combine that with his, quote unquote, uh, interference in the sentencing of Roger Stone and the desire of uh, Nadler and Schiff and everybody else to whistle A.G. Barr before their committees and have him testify on the topic. Fine. It seems to me, go ahead, impeach him again, right? Move more articles of impeachment that are without merit. I, all that is going to do is the same thing the last group of articles of impeachment did, which is to serve to strengthen President Trump. That's absolutely correct. We saw his poll numbers. Uh, the public polls have been re released since impeachment. We have the president up. Uh, 10 points. Our internal polls say the exact same thing. You know, these Democrats and their friends in the mainstream media have been out to get this have been out to get this president since the day he won the election. And I mean, it's the the attacks have not stopped. They've not ceased for the last three and a half years. And quite frankly, the American public is just 
tired of it. They don't have a bombshell. There is no smoking gun. There is nothing behind these attacks other than the frustration that Republicans won, that 63 million people voted this president into office to represent them, for him to be their voice, and he is doing it. And they are getting defeated every step along the way. They're partisan hacks. Nancy Pelosi ripping up the State of the Union. We saw how petty and petulant she was in that moment. There wasn't anyone that could watch that. If you're a Democrat, independent, or Republican, that wouldn't say that that was the most petty move. And now you're going to have more hearings. There's going to be more investigations. We all know it, but it's it doesn't. It doesn't matter. We're moving ahead with people's business. And and hopefully, uh, I think there's a you know much hope that President Trump will, uh, now that he's had three years under his belt, as you say, uh, the uh, enemies inside the perimeter being outed, uh, ousted, mm-hmm. loyalists coming mm-hmm. back, uh, continue draining that swamp with great alacrity. This story uh, from the Washington Examiner this week. $100,000-plus salaries now the norm in D.C. for the first time. For the first time, there are more residents of the nation's capital who make at least hundred grand than residents of any other income group, which, boy, oh, boy, I mean, that's almost twice the median household income in this country. And it's not just shrinking the size of government. It's also right-sizing uh, government salaries to those of the people who are paying them. I mean, this town is filled with lobbyists, with, you know, uh, businesses who profit off of the government. You know, a lot of them are, uh, you know, defense contractors, for example. But I think that the president came in from the outside. He wasn't part of the establishment class. The establishment class is the class I'm talking about. It's the swamp. It's the lobbyists. It's the corporations. It's those who try to peddle influence. And they've been stymied in the last three and a half years from a president who does business different than it's been done in years past. And they're just waiting for the moment. They're beating their breasts. They're hoping and praying that he loses in November so that things can return to normal here in Washington. And it can expand and the suburbs can get even more unaffordable than they already are. And I just got news for them. Uh, the the base is with them, and we're going to win in 2020. And it's the old adage from the Institute for Justice: there's not too much money in politics; there's too much government for sale. It's the yep. it's the government exactly side right. that needs to be addressed. Kelly Sadler, Com Director at America First Action, former Special Assistant to President Trump, and a Washington Times and Bloomberg News alum. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And it just never ends. The sawing of sawdust. We have to hear from everyone present and former who has uh, anything, even the most pedestrian comments on President Trump's policies, President Trump's tweets and the like. Everybody can have their say. Yeah, you need to make money. I know the desire of the elites is to stay relevant, even if they're saying things that really are uh, nothing new and nothing particularly insightful. And that takes us to former White House Chief of Staff General John Kelly, who uh, spoke at Drew University in New Jersey on Wednesday evening in the Q&A, of course, uh, raised questions and offered defenses, uh, raised questions about uh, Trump decision making and uh, Trump explanations and offered defenses for uh, Lieutenant Colonel 
Vinman. Uh, everybody, please stand up and clap. Uh, and, um, you know, started from the premises of the D.C. press corps in responding to matters like on immigration, saying that migrants are overwhelmingly good people and not all rapists. No one has ever said they're all rapists. That has been a canard advanced by the D.C. press corps and Trump critics from his time as a candidate to present, even though that was never said. It's not been said. It is not the belief of Trump or Trump supporters. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And General Kelly, who's a, a great patriot, should just be better than that. But, you know, the, one of the things that President Trump has learned, I think, perhaps, is that you can surround yourself with a lot of military brass. And it's very impressive. And General Kelly is a very impressive guy. And James Mattis is a very impressive guy. And they're patriots and they've served our country honorably. But it doesn't mean that they're on board for the anti-establishment agenda of President Trump. doesn't mean that uh, they can sort of get out of their own paradigm under which they've operated for their entire careers. They're just uh, not that uh, limber when it comes to uh, considering alternative points of view, alternative approaches. So, you know, Zelensky, uh, uh, excuse me, um, the, the Zelensky call, President uh, or John Kelly said, you know, that was a break in protocol. Uh, in order to get aid, you have to do X, even though, of course, I mean, sawing sawdust here. Zelensky didn't have to do X because he got the military aid without doing X. Uh, through, the, through the Obama administration up until that phone call, the policy of the U.S. was militarily to support Ukraine in their defensive fight against the Russians, Kelly said. Of course, the Obama administration didn't provide military aid, didn't provide the Javelin missiles. Vindman was wrong about that when he testified, and it was this administration that backed up the rhetoric with the hardware, General Kelly. So there's nothing new here in terms of what Kelly offers, you know, his skepticism that uh, Kim Jong-un would ever, ever give of his, his nukes. President Trump tried. It's not going to happen. I mean, probably so. He tried. What are you supposed to do? The idea that uh, Putin is a revanchist who seeks to return Russia to her Cold War glory until the crash. Yeah, no surprises there either. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Actually sitting in for me tomorrow night on Friday night will be Chicago Tribune editorial board member. No, actually the new editorial page editor, Kristen McQuarrie, as well as their longtime page two columnist, John Cass. Have a great weekend. You'll pick it up with me next week. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.